You're listening to Sermon Audio from Grace Community Church of Gresham, Oregon. For more information about service times and ways to follow us online, please go to gracecc.net. That's gracecc.net. And thanks for joining us. Well, good morning, Grace family and friends. I'm Jay Messenger, and our producer, Jim, and I are um, just below Crown Point here in the Columbia Gorge on this beautiful vista on a beautiful morning. It's another beautiful morning. It's been beautiful mornings, beautiful days all week here, hasn't it? So with our passage in mind, we wanted to come to a vista because the passage we'll look at this morning actually takes place on a vista, not unlike this one with an incredible view. But we'll come to that in just a minute. I know that you just heard uh, the announcement from Pastor Bob that he is going to be transitioning to a new role and a new opportunity, and we're very excited for him. But of course, we're all going to miss him. And this month, we'll see a variety of transitions. Um, Our college young adult pastor, Ted Taplett, is going to be stepping away. And Jim Chase, our producer, who's with me here this morning, is also going to be stepping away. So that's three of our staff who are transitioning. And later this month, we'll let you know about kind of a drive-by thank you that we're going to do for them so that you will have your opportunity as a church family to express your appreciation and love for them and for their families and for the blessing that they have been to us. But it's a season of transition. And if you watched my Facebook sermon preview for this week, I talked about a time of transition in my life. You see, many years ago, for those of you who know my story, I received Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior at a Young Life camp the summer of my freshman year in high school. And again, I talked about this on my Facebook sermon preview, but it was this incredible experience of determining for myself that yes, God was real and the hope and the future that he promised me was real and the relationship that he offered to me was mine to have. So I took him up on it. I received him into my life that summer. But what you may not know about my story was just a couple weeks after that camp was when we relocated and moved up here to the Portland area. So I'd had this incredible experience and now went through this incredible transition as well because I was leaving behind years of friendships, a community that uh, I had spent my middle school and first year of high school in and was leaving all that behind. And we relocated to a rental house in Beaverton because we knew it was gonna be a temporary situation so we could get our bearings and get established a little bit before we hopefully were able to buy a larger house, a more permanent place for us to move into. So in the meantime, we were in this rental house in transition in Beaverton. The house was way too small for us. We had most of our life in boxes. We could never find anything. And we knew it was a temporary transition place. And my dad, as many of you know, was a construction superintendent. But in this season of his life, he had what probably was his most challenging, most difficult construction job. And so my dad, and I greatly respected and appreciated him for it, he was a great example to me, rarely brought his work stress home. But in this season, he did. It seemed like every night he came home, he was not only tired, he was under tremendous stress. And because of that, my parents were very conflicted. Now, my parents had had marital struggles and, um, you know, the usual things that come with marriage. And they'd had their occasional conflicts, but they were fighting every night. And it was an incredibly hard time and hard season for me. I had no friends, was in a neighborhood I knew we weren't going to stay in, and was just kind of marking time, hoping and expecting things to get better. 
But in this really hard season, I began to wonder, was what I experienced at that camp real? Was God real? Was my relationship with him real? Or was this just some spiritual high, this emotional experience that I went away and had at this camp, but now I was back to real life? Was it, was it an emotional experience? Or was it truly a life-changing event that had happened to me? Well, as we come to this passage now, we see a similar situation beginning to take place. It is, it is a time of transition because if you've been with us the last couple of weeks, as we've started the Gospel of Matthew, we see that John the Baptist appears on the scene in Matthew chapter 3. He has this message of salvation and judgment. He comes in the spirit and power of Elijah. He looks like Elijah. He sounds like Elijah. He dresses like Elijah. He has a similar message to Elijah. And his message is there is one who is coming whose sandals he's not even fit to carry. And of course, that one who comes, as we saw last week, was Jesus, the promised one, the Messiah. And Jesus is baptized. And if you'll remember what we looked at last week, when Jesus was baptized, the Holy Spirit came upon him and the voice of the Father spoke. And he said, this is my son with whom I love and whom I am well pleased. So Jesus is told that he is loved by the Father, valued by the Father, and that the Father is proud of him. He has his full approval. And so with these incredible words spoken over him, now Jesus is about to enter a time of transition. It is a time of testing, and it is a time of temptation. Many of you are familiar with this passage, but this is the testing, the temptations of Christ. And it was going to establish once and for all, was he truly the Messiah? Was he the chosen one? Was he the promised one? And now everything was on the line. And this is where we pick up our passage this morning. So it says that Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Now there's a lot here for us to unpack. First off, Jesus didn't wander into the desert. He didn't stumble into the desert. He didn't get lost in the desert. The Holy Spirit, God himself, literally led Jesus into the desert. This was purposeful. So Jesus is led to this lonely, solitary, desolate place. That's what the wilderness means. And he is going to be tested by the Father, but he's going to be tempted by Satan, by the evil one. And surely one of the reasons why Jesus was led into the desert was to ponder and to reflect on these incredible things that the Father had expressed to him and what he had said over him. But this was all purposeful because everything the Father said about Jesus was now going to be tested by the evil one who was trying to tempt him to sin. And there's all sorts of symbolism and imagery. That number 40, 40 days and 40 nights, just reminds us of a lot of things. First off, it reaches all the way back to the book of beginnings. Thousands and thousands and thousands of years previously, when Adam and Eve were in right relationship with God, were told not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They chose to disobey and to not trust God and to eat from the tree anyway. And when that happened, sin entered the world with everything that came with it, death and disease and decay and destruction. But God made a promise 
in the aftermath of that. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, he promised that the seed of the woman would bring about one who would eventually crush the head of the serpent, of Satan, defeat him, defeat death, and would bring life for all people. So Adam and Eve succumbed to sin and they failed. But would Jesus, as the son, succumb to that same sin? Or would he succeed? Was he truly the promised seed from Genesis chapter 3, 15? And then there's the imagery of Moses. Matthew deliberately throughout, especially the beginning of his gospel, makes these comparisons between Jesus and Moses. And again, for those of you who remember your Bibles or remember your Old Testament rather, Moses spent 40 days and nights fasting on Mount Sinai when the law was given to him by God. But Moses eventually failed. And he failed to enter the promised land as we saw in our last series in Numbers. So was Jesus truly the greater Moses? Would he succeed in being faithful and obedient and trusting where Moses failed? Was Jesus the greater Moses? And then there's this incredible imagery of Israel. They wandered for 40 years in the desert, again, because they failed repeatedly to trust and obey God. So would Jesus prove himself to be the true Israelite? So you have all these important symbols, all this incredible imagery that's taking place in this opening setting of what's about to happen with what Jesus is going to come up against. And we have to understand that everything is riding on this. If Jesus sins, it is game over. It proves that he is not the promised one. He is not the promised seed. He is not the sinless savior. And so he enters into this weakened, right? You ever fasted for any length of time? I've fasted before, but never for 40 days and 40 nights. How hungry must he have been? And for some of us, we won't name names. When you get hungry, it's not just that you get hungry, you get hangry. You are not at your emotional best. You are emotionally weakened as well as physically weakened. So surely all this was going on with Jesus. But in my study of this passage, I was reminded of something though. Jesus was deliberately weakened, but didn't the spirit lead him into the desert so that he could be deliberately strengthened? What happened in this desert? Jesus prayed. He was in solitude. He was in silence. Surely he meditated and thought about what the Father had said to him. And yes, he was fasting. My friends, in any spiritual disciplines book, in any spiritual practices discussion, we just named several spiritual practices that are designed to deepen our relationship with God and to, yes, strengthen us. So Jesus was deliberately weakened by what he was experiencing, but he was also deliberately strengthened and prepared for what was about to become his way. So once again, let's remember everything the Father just said about the Son, you're mine, I love you, I approve of you, is all about to be challenged and tested by the evil one. It goes on to say that after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, Jesus was hungry. The tempter, Satan, came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, then tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, 
and this is out of the Old Testament, Deuteronomy, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. So let's look at this. Satan comes to him and says, if you are the son of God, it's really important for us to understand he's not questioning that. He knows that Jesus is the son of God. He's being very manipulative here. Basically what he's saying is, since you are the son of God, since I know and you know that you can do this, turn these stones into bread. Now, is there anything inherently sinful in that? Specifically, was it wrong for Jesus to turn the stones into bread in and of itself? And the answer is no. Jesus had the power to do that. He was God. But what the problem was, was Satan was inciting him and manipulating him and challenging him to use his power at his own discretion to act outside of what God's will was for him. Because remember, it told us, it tells us in those opening verses, he was led by the Spirit into the desert to fast for 40 days and 40 nights. So for Jesus to have changed this bread, this, these stones into bread, would have been directly against God's will. What Satan basically is saying here is, hey, don't let God test you. You test God. Let's really see if he means what he says. Well, Jesus not only doesn't do that, but he comes right back at him with God's truth out of Deuteronomy chapter 8. And this verse is a hyperlink, again, back to Moses and Israel in the Old Testament when they failed to trust and obey God. And that's where Jesus quotes from, is he is going to trust and obey God. And so this is an incredible scene here. But that's just the first attack. Here comes the next one. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, since you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written. And now Satan quotes scripture. This is out of Psalm 91 verses 11 through 12. He will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Well, Satan is quoting scripture. That seems reasonable, doesn't it? But what Satan fails to mention is the rest of the verse. And he takes this out of context and he misapplies it. And once again, he is trying to manipulate Jesus into not trusting and obeying God. And what's a little chilling to me and sobering to me is that Satan knows scripture. And he knows it well enough to misuse it. Now, my friends, you and I are going to encounter folks, folks with good intentions, who will misquote, take scripture out of context, and then misapply it. Oftentimes, thinking they are doing what's right and with good intentions. I mean, by way of example, you'll have folks who will knock on your door, usually two of them in white shirts, who will say that they have another gospel, that your gospel is incomplete, and they will have verses, many that are taken out of context and misquoted and misapplied, to substantiate what they're trying to say. And this is what Satan is doing. He's misusing scripture and trying to manipulate Jesus into disobeying and not trusting God. He's trying to get him to test God. God's testing you? Well, you test God. Let's really see if he means what he says he will say and do. 
you ever tempted to, to test God? To set the terms yourself for your life? Jesus refuses to do that. And in fact, once again, he will quote Deuteronomy. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put your Lord, the Lord your God to the test. He reaches back once again to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16 and says, no, I'm not going to do it. And this is why. Such good words for us to absorb, but this isn't the final attack. There's another attack. And this is why our producer Jim and I came to this vista because now Satan will take Jesus to this incredible vista with this panoramic view. And this is what he says. He took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their splendor. All this I give to you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. So these first two attacks were kind of subtle. They were somewhat sophisticated, manipulative. Satan throws all that out the window. This is a direct frontal assault on Jesus. Jesus, who are you going to worship? You're going to worship and follow God or will you worship and follow me? But there's even more taking place here. You see, he's offering Jesus a shortcut. He's saying you can have the crown without going to the cross. All this can be yours. You can have this kingdom and all the kingdoms that come with it if you'll just follow me. Jesus, here's a shortcut. Take it. How often are we tempted by shortcuts? So much of trusting and obeying God is a long obedience in the same direction. And so often we could be tempted to look for and take shortcuts when it comes to trusting and obeying God. For example, he tells us to wait and we choose not to wait, but to take matters into our own hands. There are so many ways that we can be tempted to take a shortcut when God is calling us to trust and obey him in the moment and for the long haul. And you see these shortcuts that come our way, these shortcuts to happiness and fulfillment and peace, they, they have a lot of different voices, but really it's just one voice. It's the voice that says, well, no one's going to know. Or it's the voice that says, you know, one compromise really isn't that big a deal. Or what you're thinking about doing isn't that big a deal at all. Or they do it, so why shouldn't you? Or here's one of my favorites that I hear often as a pastor for the broken choices people make in their lives. God wants me happy. And so it goes. Those are not the voice of the Holy Spirit. Those are the voice of the evil one, or even of our own brokenness and sinfulness, being tempted to take a shortcut instead of trusting and obeying God. So my friends, once again, Jesus will answer him and he will say, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And then it says the devil left him and angels came and attended him. In each of these temptations, Jesus not only says no, but he answers with scripture. And I think that's significant for us. And once again, Jesus is reaching back into Deuteronomy and he's, he's quoting Deuteronomy in order to tell Satan no. And notice he says, get away and go away. And he does. 
And then it says that angels came and attended him. God gives him the resources that he needs when he needs them. And the same is true for you and me. But one of the takeaways I immediately have from this passage and from what we're seeing here is I need the Lord. Man, I I need him. I need his help. I need his wisdom. I need the guidance of his Holy Spirit to resist temptation and to be faithful to what he's called me to do and to be. And so my friends, let's take a moment and think about that. Let's recenter ourselves on the reality that we need Jesus, that we need him every day. And so let's sing about that now together. So Jesus is our rock. He is our foundation and this rock will not move. And boy, I'm so glad that is true. And that's so important for you and I to remember because we're caught in the middle of a war. That is one of the primary takeaways from this passage that we, is, we have just looked at, is that Satan, demons, and spiritual warfare are real. They are a reality. The war we're in really has three different fronts. We have our own selfishness, our own sinfulness, our own brokenness that we're up against. We have this broken world that we live in with broken systems, and it's just a world that's broken and marred by sin. And then we have an enemy, the evil one, Satan. And unfortunately, there's two extremes that we can go to when we begin to talk about Satan. Some of you have already been defaulting to one of those extremes as we were working our way through the passage. When you first heard Satan or the tempter, you began to check out a little bit. Or maybe even you begin to question that a little bit. Really? Satan? The tempter? Because unfortunately, our culture has construed Satan as this little guy in a red suit with a pitchfork who goes around saying, hey, do this, hey, don't do that. And he's far more sophisticated, far more malevolent, and far more effective at what he does than that. And yes, he is our enemy. He hates God. He hates God's children. He wants to make life hell here for us, and he wants to take us to hell with him. But he is real. And sometimes we can think we're being spiritually sophisticated or, um, you know, in our Western thinking, we can think, oh, that's so primitive for someone to think that there's a Satan, that there's this enemy who is always against us. But that's not spiritual sophistication. That's being spiritually naive. Yes, Satan is real. He's a real enemy. He has demons who he employs and the spiritual warfare that all believers are up against is is real. But we can also go to the other extreme with Satan, and that is if we're not discrediting or denying him, we obsess about him. We give him too much credit and too much focus. And we begin to think that everything is because of Satan. When many times, I would think often, most of the time, it's our own sinfulness, our own brokenness, or this broken world that we live in that we're up against just as much as we are Satan or his demons. So with that said, we're not going to give him any more attention here. But we do want to talk about the reality of the spiritual warfare that we are caught in the middle of. Think about with me for a moment racism and and what's going on in our culture and continues to go on in our culture. Racism is systemic. And are we so naive to think 
that racism is something that we're capable of just on our own? Doesn't it make sense? Isn't it reasonable that there is an entity, there is a force behind systems of racism that perpetuate it and keep it going? You know, I was struck by the reality of this when I recently read a book by Martin Luther King Jr. It's called Why We Can't Wait. And it talks about his assessment of what was going on in the 50s and 60s with racial justice. It focuses on the letter to the churches in Birmingham when he was in jail and when he wrote that amazing letter. And then it has a little afterward. But it's an, it's an amazing read. It's very compelling. It's very educational, but it's very inspirational as well. And I would encourage you at some point, if you've never read it, to read it. But it is so relevant to the day, in part because in many ways, despite the progress, despite what's changed in our culture, many things with racism are still the same. Why, why is that? With all that has been accomplished, with the movement that has obviously gone through spurts and sprints, but has still been constant, that we're still in this place where there's still so much racial injustice. It's persistent, it's enduring, and it still goes on. You know, I, I was reminded of this um, by a friend of mine. He's Ethiopian. He's a, he's a dear friend. I love him. He's a great brother in Christ. Telling me a story just some years ago about how he walked into this Ethiopian restaurant and he himself is Ethiopian and he speaks the, the two native languages of Ethiopia as well as English. And he walks in and um, these, these ethnic Ethiopians who were in there didn't recognize him as an Ethiopian, didn't realize that he could understand what they were saying. And they began to make all these disparaging comments about him because of his race. They didn't think he was Ethiopian. They thought he was too dark to be Ethiopian. And they were making all these comments and finally he had enough and he spoke to them in native Ethiopian and said, I'm Ethiopian too. And why would you say these kind of things about anyone? And he confronted them and, and I'm glad he did. But my friends, racism is something that's, that's pervasive. And as Jesus followers, we're called not to tolerate it and not to accommodate it and not to stay silent, but to speak about it and to do something about it. And in that spirit and in that heart, we've been talking some time about trying to compile some racial justice resources for you to have access to. And I'm happy to say that we'll release those this week. In our weekly email update, there'll be a link to a resource page that links you to all sorts of videos and write-ups and blogs, um, many of them by folks right here in our community who you know, who are Jesus followers, who have um, credibility and wisdom, and they speak to these issues. And these these resources will hopefully equip you to more meaningfully engage in racial justice and to live out what we're called to be and to do as Jesus followers. So you'll find that in our weekly email update that will come out this next week. And um, we'll make that available on our website in the next couple of weeks. We'll let you know when we've done that as well. It can be complicated navigating spiritual warfare in that reality. And yes, those times when God is testing us and those times when Satan is tempting us. There's layers to it, but there is one dynamic that we do need to talk about together that I think can be helpful in figuring out what's going on when those circumstances come our way. And that's this, that when God tests us, he always wants us to pass the test. 
And when Satan tempts us, he always wants us to fail. With Jesus, we see that he was not only weakened, he was strengthened by that experience in the desert. God was preparing him for the temptations that were going to come his way. And that is the heart of God. He wants us to pass the test of faith and trust in him. And he's always trying to resource and prepare us for when those circumstances come our way, even when those circumstances are from him. But when Satan attacks us, when he tempts us, he always wants us to fail. You know, I told you this before, and ironically, I just had this same dream last week. I have this dream where I am late to a class. And this is so funny to me because I have been done with grad school for over five years now. I haven't been in class in forever. But I've had this reoccurring dream through my elementary years, through middle school, high school, college, and even my graduate school years, and yes, even still now. I have this dream where I'm late for this test, I can't find the class, I am not prepared, I, I show up, and the teacher basically has done nothing to prepare me and basically wants me to fail. That's the whole vibe of this dream. No matter how hard I work, no matter how much I try, I am going to fail this test. How many of you in your heart of hearts regard God that way? How many of you perceive God to not be the one who absolutely wants you to pass the tests that come your way, that challenge your faith and your trust in him? But how many of you think he's the one who wants you to fail? But that is not the heart of God. God is the teacher, so to speak, who prepares us and guides us and equips us and wants us to pass the test and then celebrates when we do. When I first started into grad school so many years ago, my first class was with this guy by the name of Dr. Gary Bashirs. He did something revolutionary at the time. He actually came out to our church, and this was before there was distance learning and online learning like we have now. He would come out to our church and teach our staff and folks from our church who wanted to be a part of this class because so many of our staff didn't have our degrees. So we had a full class just by coming out to our campus. And I remember taking this, this first theology class from him and being absolutely convinced I was gonna fail. I'd been out of school for like four or five years and grad school is very different than college far more difficult, far more rigorous. And I just knew I was gonna fail this class. And I remember writing this paper and doing my best and hoping that it would be okay. And I'll never forget Gary in this class, holding up my paper as an example, when I thought I was gonna fail and reading the paper to the class and saying, this is a really good paper and this has been really well done and we just need to celebrate this. And I've never forgotten that. And I've always thought about it in regards to the character and heart of our God. That when circumstances come our way, that test and challenge our faith, He is the God, He is the teacher, He is the one who wants us to pass and wants to celebrate when we do pass. Because at the end of the day, identity matters. God's identity, who He really is, matters. And our identity matters. Do you realize that every single one of those attacks by Satan against Jesus were challenging Jesus's identity? They were challenging who he really was. And each time 
Jesus responded with scripture. And I think there's something there for us. And I think there's a wise pattern there for us. We constantly need to be rooting our identity in what God says about us. Not even in what we think about ourselves, not what other people say about us, but what God says about us. He is the rock that will not move. He is the one who defines reality for us. And too many of us find our identity in what we do or what other people say or what other people communicate to us or what we see or read online when our true identity is who God says that we are. And so that's why it's so important that you know the Word of God. You need to be in the Word of God and the Word of God needs to get into you. And I talked about this reality in one of the recent devotions I did on our website. But when is the last time you've memorized God's Word? When's the last time you've reached back and grabbed something from God's word that you've memorized and reminded yourself of what it says or applied it to a situation in your life? It's kind of a lost art, a lost discipline, but it's such an invaluable one. And think about it. We memorize all sorts of things. We memorize addresses. We memorize phone numbers. We memorize all sorts of things. We can do the same with scripture. And when you do, if you will do that, You can use that as a place to find your true identity, to remind yourself of who you are in Jesus Christ. Because we forget. We get spiritual amnesia. We forget who we are and we buy into the lies that come our way, whether they're from ourselves or the evil one or this broken world that we live in. Because at the end of the day, we need to trust the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. And that is a, a, a defining moment choice. And it is a often everyday moment by moment choice. You see, there's a defining moment where you will choose to trust Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, just like I did when I was a freshman in high school at that camp. But then from that point on, it is a daily choice to trust in the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. Because the reality here, and unfortunately, this is a reality that we see from this passage, is that if you are trying to trust and obey God, it will be difficult at times. Temptations will come your way. You will be attacked. You will be tested. And there will be really difficult challenges to that. And so that's why we need to trust in the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. You see, my friends, it's not a question of if your faith is going to be tested, It is a question of when your faith will be tested. This last week, I had the privilege of doing a small memorial service for a family. They lost their only child, their adult daughter, and it's an incredibly heartbreaking situation. Children are not supposed to die before their parents. And that is a pain that I don't know, but I do know that it is an incredibly difficult pain and not something you ever get over. It's, it's something you somehow get through. But that being said, as I was doing this memorial service, afterwards I was talking to the dad who was still in shock and understandably so, still trying to grapple with the reality that he lost his only child. And I'll never forget him saying, you know, I just, I don't know where God is in all this. I don't know that I can trust God 
because look what's happened. And, and how do I find my way back, back to God in all this? Boy, questions of the heart and probably questions any one of us would be asking in a circumstance like that. But that's why it's so important that we remember who God says he is and who he says we are, that we anchor ourselves to what he says, even when it doesn't feel like it, even when it doesn't seem to be true, even when the most incredibly difficult, hard things come our way, we can still choose to trust in him, even when it feels crazy to do so. My friends, communion is one of those checkpoints for us to renew our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and what he says and who he is and what he has done for each one of us through his death, burial, and resurrection. On his last night with his disciples, before he was to go to the cross and to his death, and then his eventual burial and resurrection, Jesus said these words. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat, this is my body. And this bread reminds us of his body and of his sacrifice for us. So let's remember that together. And then he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is the blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Let's remember that our sins are forgiven, and what he has done for each one of us. So communion reminds us, of the reality that Jesus has forgiven us. He has removed our sins, and in their place, he's given us righteousness, the power for right living with right relationship with him and with other people. But at the end of the day, it goes back to, will we trust and obey him? And so we have deliberately created some time now for you to ponder what we've talked about and learned from this morning. And specifically, will you consider what it means for you today, in this season, to trust God? What does it mean for you to renew your trust in God? Think about this, listen to the Holy Spirit, and then we will come back with some time of worship. And we want God to have his way with us. We want to put our trust in him, and he wants to help us do that. And one of those ways he helps us is through prayer. It's through community. It's through doing life together. So if you're watching this after our 845 service, we have a Zoom prayer time that you can go to. We have folks who would love to pray with you. If you're watching this at our 1045 hour or any other time in the future, at the footer of our website, we have a button for prayer requests. Click on that and someone will be praying with you. But we want to pray together and seek God together and do life together and put our trust fully in him. So how will you trust the Lord today? How will you trust the Lord this week? As you think about that, I'd like to leave you with these words from 1 Timothy that says this, 
Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. So now go into the rest of your day and the rest of your week and live for Him. We'll see you next weekend. Thank you for joining us for Sermon Audio from Grace Community Church here in Gresham, Oregon. For more information about service times and ways to follow us online, please go to gracecc.net. That's gracecc.net.